This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome back to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Thank you so much for being here with me in this hour of the program. We have lots to talk about. We're going to be talking about uh, the new survey that reveals why men cheat. <laughs> Women cheat too. So uh, we'll, we'll review the survey of that another time. Um, but the number one reasons, it may or may not surprise you. I think it will surprise you a little bit, ladies. But anyway, we'll, we'll get into that. Also, are you having a little difficulty uh, with finances in your life? Well, I have somebody who did have uh, some difficulty. Their, their career tanked and they had to get creative real quickly. And uh, so they're going to share their story about the company that they created that in business is uh it's definitely not a bust <laughs> it's booming <laughs> anyway little hint there um also going to be talking about a little menopause symptom that might surprise you and uh your emails but right now because my heart is a flutter with all of this talk around all of these things it can change your life that's why it's so important your health is is critical and uh, and so uh, the stress on your heart uh, cannot be overstated, especially when you bring it on a lot of it on yourself, or um, if you have coronary artery disease. And so, Dr. John Weisler is here in the studio with me, and we're going to be talking about the different types of heart attacks. So, let's just start with what is a heart attack, Dr. Weisler? Well, uh, thanks, Marina. A heart attack is when your heart muscle doesn't get enough blood, and so you get a number of different symptoms: so chest pain, trouble breathing, uh, sweating, nausea feeling really tired, feeling lightheaded. Sometimes you feel your heart flutter, but it's because you have a problem. Your, your heart is a muscular pump that's in the center of your chest, and its job, of course, is to pump blood through your body. It has little arteries on the outside, which we call the coronary arteries, and their job is to get blood to the heart muscle to keep it working smoothly and working properly. And so when we have a problem with those arteries, we get all these symptoms that I just mentioned, and it can damage your heart muscle and, you know, and cause more complications. And what's so great about blood? What does blood have? Well, blood's good. It's got lots of good stuff. But most important would be oxygen and then things like glucose and other nutrients that your, your heart and your other muscles and the rest of your body need. And you hear heart attack, and uh, you know it's you know it, it's cause for major concern. Um, but it seems that we've made a lot of advances in that. But it can be life threatening. Um, but there are different types of coronary artery disease that lead to heart attack. And and what are those types? Mm-hmm. So yeah, heart disease is still the number one killer for men and women in Canada. And you know we think of. Uh, most heart attacks are caused by atherosclerosis or hardening of the arteries. And so this happens because of cholesterol plaques that form in our arteries. And it's it's really complicated why they form. There's things like inflammation play a big role, uh, cholesterol, other things like high blood pressure that damage the blood vessel arteries. And then when you have a heart attack that occurs suddenly, you get these cholesterol plaques and they get disturbed. So a clot forms on top of them. And that blocks the artery or mostly blocks the artery and interrupts blood flow. So we get these symptoms. So it's very important if you get chest pain or something else uh, like nausea or sweating or something that doesn't feel right, that's unusual for you, say it's different from your usual heartburn or something, that you respect that. You know, and, and the diff- we, we divide as doctors, we divide heart attacks differently. Um, the, the most critical one is something called a STEMI. That's a fancy medical term. Uh, it means, you know, the ST segment is something we look at on ECGs, which are the little electric tracing that we do of your heart when you come into the emergency. Mm-hmm. We look for changes there to tell us that the artery is completely blocked. It needs to be unblocked really quickly. So here in Vancouver, if you have one of those, you go straight for an angiogram, which is a procedure on your heart to unblock the artery. If you're in a more remote location, you might get a special type of clot-busting drug with it because that procedure is not available. 
Other types of heart attacks would be a non-STEMI, so it doesn't meet that ECG criteria that I mentioned. Still important to get treated to get to hospital quickly. You don't need the artery opened right away. Uh, we okay. often do open the artery. We do it as part of your hospital admission, but it's not as critical. And then there's other variants. There's things like spasm of your arteries, which can still be serious. Um, you know, uh, it, the details of spasm are specific to each patient, and I have some people in my practice who have spasm that can manage some of their pain, you know, on their own. But uh, if it's unusual or if it's new for it's important to respect those symptoms. Mm-hmm. Now, you and I both do utilize telehealth in our practices, and uh, there, there was an article um, recently that measured which provinces had the highest readmission rates to their hospitals, and, and British Columbia didn't fare too well, and nor, no, did, nor was, did Saskatchewan. Unfortunately, we're one of the highest, yeah. Yes. Um, so uh, what do you think of utilizing telehealth in terms of uh, when patients are discharged, uh, especially utilizing some of the biometrics that are available today? Um, or some of the guidance that you can provide doctors in rural locations? I think it's a huge uh, advantage for patients. Uh, I do telehealth in my practice for Bella Coola, Bella Bella, and then uh, we're starting to work with the Sunshine Coast. We also work with Dawson Creek and Fort St. John in the interior. And, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's great to be able to support you know, our colleagues and, and some of the more remote locations, the family doctors or general practitioners, in some cases nurse practitioners, take on a lot of very complicated um, patients and work that they have to worry about because they have no specialists locally. It's often very helpful for them to be able to, you know, review cases with somebody like myself um, because we are, I guess, more experienced with handling them. We see so many patients, uh, so we can be a big support. And then for patients that are discharged, it's very important they have some sort of follow-up as as quickly as possible. In some cases, that's going to their family physician's office. Uh, some patients have trouble making it uh, out if they're if they're elderly, if they have mobility problems. It's hard for them to get to appointments. Uh, and so for those patients, I think telehealth is a really good option. Um, and on the North Shore, we're very privileged. We have a, a nurse that will actually go and visit patients after their heart attack, help them uh, get mobile get more mobile, answer a lot of their questions and the anxiety that comes with having uh, with having a diagnosis of heart disease. Uh, so she's been a huge help. Um, her name is Jennifer Tchaikovsky. Um, we also do telehealth through our office so we can see patients webcam to webcam in their house. Again, for some patients shortly after discharge, if coming to see us is a challenge, uh, we can squeeze those patients in. And, you know, phone contact can work well as well. Right. And that may also prevent what I was thinking uh, when I read that article is that it may prevent that maybe there isn't the, an, enough support and not necessarily just for patients with heart attacks, but those patients might have anxiety, they might be nervous mm-hmm. about something that happens, and so they may actually go back to the emergency par- department. There may be a fear of litigation or, you know, we're just going to admit this, we're going to readmit mm-hmm. this person, just check things out, um, which adds to the uh, readmission rates uh, in the hospitals. And so I just thought that uh, utilizing telehealth, and, and I actually utilize it around the world. I mean, I see, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's a different it's subject. Impressive. I, I <laughs> It's not that impressive, but I actually, um, you know, uh, see patients Amsterdam, all over the U.S., Singapore, Australia, New Zealand. I mean, everywhere. And um, but you know, which is you know great. They have somebody that they can speak to about their issues. But you know, with the way that telehealth is advancing today, that vital signs can be taken mm-hmm. in the home or in or in another doctor's office, and and so they can have that check, and that can that can actually give them some peace of mind and give their families peace of mind. That's right. We're looking to join a trial called Tech for Home that uh, we're very excited to be part of. 
Uh, and it, it involves some of those sensors. So remote weight monitoring for patients with heart failure who uh, can retain fluid. Their weight will increase when they retain fluid. So that's mm-hmm. one of the markers we can use. Things like remote blood pressure monitoring and in cardiology heart rate and ECG. A lot of people can get these little apps for their smartphones. If you get the right sensor, uh, there's a few of them that can work very well. They can give you a reasonably accurate reproduction of your heart's rhythm. So for our patients with heart arrhythmias, they can be really helpful. Again, remote monitoring so they don't even have to come into the office and hopefully try and decrease the barrier to them getting treated and getting treated quickly. Yeah, and decrease the load in your office and, and decrease the pressure on the emergency departments. Right. I really think that the uh, would, the governments move so slow, especially in healthcare. Mm-hmm. You know, things move at a snail's pace. But I, I really think, and, and I know that some of the hospitals that are, the newer hospitals that are being built, they are um, uh, creating provisions for telehealth. So mm-hmm. this is what we're looking at. The, this is healthcare, uh, you know, in the 21st century. And it's it's moving, at, you know, quite rapidly. Telehealth is moving quite rapidly and there's so many things that can be done um, and and that actually may uh, decrease pressure on the emergency departments and and the hospitals. Oh, I I totally agree with you. At Lionsgate, we're uh, working on our our new patient care center, which is a new patient care tower. And on the first floor, they have a large uh, area of space devoted to telehealth. And the scenario that you gave with patients having symptoms is so common and people end up coming and sometimes having to stay to sort out their symptoms. You know, if we can talk to them, sometimes they're still going to have to come in and be assessed, but sometimes we can keep them out of hospital. And a lot of cardiac patients, they have, you know, they'll notice every little chest pain, at, right. for example, after the heart attack, which is understandable, mm-hmm. right? If you've gone through a life-threatening heart attack, mm-hmm. but a lot of their pain is muscular or it's not serious, but it's hard for them to know. Sometimes we can't tell, but sometimes we can. We're able to reassure the patient and they can avoid having to come into to hospital and, and be seen. Absolutely. I do think we need to um, be creative and utilize telehealth uh, and you know, especially as it relates to our healthcare system, because it's not something we're going to be able to afford over the long term. Long term, if we continue at the, at the rate we're going, and that we're not, um, you know, utilizing uh, telehealth and information technology. I mean, you know, we are in some ways, and, and in other ways, um, we're not. So, um, but I think taking a specific problem, looking at the operations, of the flow of the hospitals, combined with uh, more, uh, you know, technolo- technological support out in the community, you know, we might be able to um, save some dollars and ultimately save some lives because that's what it is all about. So uh, um, I'd like to ask you to stay in the studio because we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the stressors that can occur in people's romantic lives. I'll be here. (laughs) In their intimate lives. So we're going to cover a little bit of that and uh, also going to talk about this little chronic busyness that goes on with um, people's lives that they're, you know, I heard from a a gentleman this week and he said that um, his wife was just chronically cleaning a place for everything and everything in his place. She was busy, 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 uh, but the intimacy was lacking. And so I really want your input a little bit later on in the program uh, after we review the cheating uh, survey, (laughs) the male cheating survey. Um, But we're going to talk about uh, the impact on the man's heart as well as the impact on uh, the woman's heart around chronic busyness. So, so I appreciate your staying. Always uh, love the information you provide, Dr. Weisler. You do tremendous work in the community, and you are on social media. And we're, your uh, Twitter is? Uh, Twitter is uh, John RV Cardio. Excellent. It's excellent information there. So when I come back, we're going to, I'm going to read an email about uh, a woman and her perceptions of married men on social media. I am Maureen McGrath and you're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. 
Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. This week, I spoke to a number of men around the world in sexless marriages. Many of those men were uh, tolerating, if you will, uh, these sexless marriages without saying anything. And in some, it was leading them to depression and anxiety and looking around. Uh, I was quite surprised at how long people... Um, tolerated men tolerated these sexless marriages and some of the reasons uh, from their wives as to why they weren't having sex uh, and so many of them just uh, were chronically fatigued uh, they were busy 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 too busy uh, it, it just kind of got away from them uh, the advances were actually uh, turned down uh, the women uh, according to the men that I spoke to and I only spoke to about four or five but you know that's four or five hours that I'm on on the line with them and um, I in and amongst all the all of the other work that I do. Um, but these men were really distressed and really upset. They didn't want to leave their marriages. They had children. Uh, they were hard workers. Many of them were the only breadwinner in the family. Uh, a couple of the women worked part-time. Uh, one woman worked full-time. Others were um, stay-at-home moms. And, and there was no sex. Uh, there, you know, and it went on for two years to the one who was a decade and and he said, you know, after a decade, he started looking around. Of course, he had turned a bit to porn and he had turned a bit to uh, masturbation. So I wanted to read this. I got this email that I thought was interesting. In case I haven't mentioned to you 16 million times that I did a TEDx talk on the no sex marriage, masturbation, cheating, loneliness and shame. I will mention it again. Um, and, and so this lady watched it and she said, I saw your TEDx talk and, and absolutely loved it. I was married for 21 years and had sex almost every day, except when the kids were born and I was tired and at that time sex was sporadic my husband passed away 10 years ago and on the dating scene now I seem to be a magnet for married men and they state what you stated in your TEDx talk she went on to say I find it rampant on social media. Married men trying to flirt with women on here. They are usually in a different country. I wrote a blog on LinkedIn a couple of years ago, she said, called The Scent of a Woman, regarding sex in a marriage and how women think their husbands are content with the little sex they are getting, if any. But sometimes the husbands are having sex, but not with them. The blog was aimed at women. I, she, said, she goes on to say she addressed the fact that the more women have sex, the more they want it. This is true. I can, uh, you've heard me talk about that before. The less women have sex, the less they want it. She says, Maureen, you touched on this in your TEDx talk. A lot of men sent me a message after that article saying that was their life or they are considering having an extramarital affair because they are craving sex and intimacy that they are just not getting at home. They also asked me what was the best way to get their wives to read my article. I had a lot of women message me stating that I am blaming women for men that stray and I am letting women down, etc. The reality is the reality. Sure, there are men that cheat because of their low self-esteem, even if they're getting sex at home. But there are also lots of men that wouldn't cheat if this was available at home. Anyway, once again, I thank you for taking the time to read this. So, so I wanted to review a survey that was done on the dating site Seeking.com. They surveyed over 8,000 men, some of whom list their status as married but looking. And found that the number one reason a man steps outside of his relationship is 
You want to guess? Give me a call and you can win a prize. one 877 You got to call really quickly though. Um, but I'll tell you that, uh, and, and I've heard this. I also heard this in my clinical practice recently and I heard it on one of the Skype calls, another one. Um, it was from the woman. Uh, she said that she, so this is um, one of the, this is like number one, two, three, four, five, six, like the seventh reason why men cheat. And it's because they get a hall pass from their partner. So you know what? Women resort to saying, just go, just go have sex with somebody else as long as I don't have to have sex with you. And they want to remain married and they say they get along really well, and but they will not have that intimate connection. Neglect is the next mo- uh, next reason. Uh, midlife crisis was um, 12% um, were in a midlife crisis. 8% felt neglected. Um, 4% uh, had a hall, hall pass from their partner. 19% of these people had open relationships in relation to the lack of sex in their marriage. 23% never cheated. And 32% of the 8,000, and that is a fairly robust, that's a very robust uh, investigation into this, uh, but 32% were in a sexless relationship. It is critical that intimacy be a part of the relationship. I also cannot tell you how many patients that I see that tell me that they didn't realize sex was important in a marriage. They married the person because they thought he could provide for them. A lot of men feel that stress and that strain and they feel that. They feel that they have been, um, they, that they are being used or that they have been used or that the only reason that uh, they were, this person married them, they kind of figure that out as the years go by and I've gotten a lot of comments about that on my TEDx talk. So this chronic busyness, which is seems to be uh, what's going on out there today in a lot of the homes, uh, women are busy with uh, volunteering at school with the kids, with the perfect hosts, uh, you know, their work, whatever. They have so much. At the end of the day, they're exhausted. No time for intimacy. Sex is for you two ladies. I also have to remind patients of that repeatedly, and women are very surprised at that because we are conditioned to think we need to serve men or to service men. I had a woman in my clinical practice this week who also spoke about that, how her partner always experiences an orgasm and she never has. I said, time to focus on your orgasm. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the final stroke of the Sunday Night Health Show. Hopefully you're stroking someone out there. Uh, Dr. Weisler, thanks so much for staying in the studio with me because I'd like to talk to you about this issue of this loneliness and uh, you know, stress and pressure that these men are feeling but have difficulty talking about. What's the impact on, on the heart? Yeah, well, like we've said before, I think uh, on the show, Marine, um, everything is connected with our health. So a problem in one sphere affects another, and that's physical, uh, emotional, psychological, you name it. It's all tied together. So with chronic loneliness, isolation, and stress, there's a whole number of things that change. Um, isolation tends to decrease our our own activities, like our own sort of um, ability to look after ourselves and our own um, activity levels. So when you're lonely and isolated, you're less active, you care less about your health and your your appearance, what you eat, your healthy food choices, and then about, you know, whether you go see the doctor, do your regular checkups, monitor things like your regular risk, like your cardiac risk factors. So things like your blood pressure and your your, your blood cholesterol your, and, 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 and so forth. 
Uh, you're more likely to smoke, more likely to drink too much. So loneliness, isolation, all play a huge role. Chronic stress as well. It's it's you know some some men can be very type A and and you know go getters and and uh, sometimes what is good in business is maybe bad for us in our personal life. So. Uh, when you're chronically under a lot of strain, when you're anxious, when you're meeting deadlines, you're not sleeping enough, it tends to raise our blood pressure. It's it's proven stress is one of the well-recognized factor, risk factors for heart disease, and, and it does so through a whole number of different mechanisms. And, and men need sex. They, they deal with their stress through sex. Right? That's a very, one very important way, for sure. Yes. Um, and, and so in women, uh, you know, this is sort of the Mars-Venus thing. When women are stressed, the last thing they want is sex. Mm-hmm. It does. It does seem to be the opposite for sure. Yes, yeah. and and so when peripheral vascular resistance is elevated in when people are stressed, and and that uh, may happen from a lack of sex, lack of intimacy, lack of closeness, they may have elevated blood pressure. I mean, can this lead to a person having a stroke? Yeah, it can. It uh, so. Both of, you know, all, all of these risk factors that get worse when we're isolated, when we're active, they increase our risk of heart disease, our risk of stroke. High blood pressure is one of them, uh, for, for sure. And, and you know, uh, erectile dysfunction, problems in the bedroom, sometimes they're psychological and they're because of stress. And sometimes they're physical as well because of things like high blood pressure that damage the arteries to, to our penis. So uh, both are both are both both factors are important. Absolutely. And um, I'm just trying to get, you know, it. I've done a lot of education for women, and and I've certainly been um, criticized (laughs) for some of my education. You know, if I've made the statement ever, I believe it was recorded on radio, um, that I said, if you're not having sex with your husband, someone else is or someone else will. And and women had said to me, you're blaming uh, women for men's bad behavior. But I think if we, uh, you know, is it fair to impose fidelity, and I'm not asking you this question, it's rhetorical, is it fair to impose fidelity on a person who is deprived of sex from their spouse? But the, the stress of being deprived of sex from your spouse and, and being in a marriage and being the, the caregiver and the provider and then potentially going outside of the relationship and getting caught or not, you know, it can be covert, and that can put added stress on a person who may also be having incredible pressure at work and may need, and I'm not giving any excuse for men cheating or permission, but I'm just saying these are the realities of life. I think you're absolutely right. And we know that people who are in stable and committed relationships, uh, whether you know heterosexual or homosexual, but they have lower rates of heart disease and they tend to be more healthy and they tend to, in a sense, look after each, each other. So when the relationship is impaired or when it's suffering, when it's under stress, that's a huge uh, impact on our both our, you know, our, our heart health and everything else, mm-hmm. for sure. And one of the main reasons it seems, it would seem to me, I see this... Uh, clinically in my practice, these trends that, you know, women are so busy. Mm-hmm. They are so busy. They, they have, you know, it's so, and everything they do is so important. And, and, you know, dare I say, they're not tending to the home embers. Uh, and, and so they, they're living uh, sort of an, in an extroverted fashion outside of their marriage and everything is, is looking great. And, you know, their house looks great and the kids look amazing. And, and uh, w- whether it be their job or their volunteer work at school or, or however it is, is, um, but they're they're too busy to actually be intimate with their partner. So, what about the health hazard for women who uh, live in a chronic state of busyness, especially um, at, at their risk of heart attack? Well, I think it's it's something to pay attention to, and finding balance is is a huge 
problem or a huge chore in our in our in our modern society. There is so much to do, and I think while both genders, you know, experience some stress and pressure to provide, I think it's especially hard on women because they often have both a role outside of the home and a role at home. Or mm-hmm. if they're at home, they have more than one kids, or they're a caregiver to a sick parent or something. So mm-hmm. all of these chronic stresses build up, and it's it's easy to lose sight of your relationship. It's also easy to, you know, not look after yourself, you know. And, and so I really think that things like allowing a bit of time every day to relax for yourself, it shouldn't be, and it's often considered like a luxury by a lot of people, it should mm-hmm. almost be considered an important, you know, health-seeking behavior as important as eating enough or sleeping enough because the chronic stress does. You get a whole host of different, you know, biological markers. You get problems with your relationships, which then compound, you know, those 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 health behaviors. So there's there's a, a whole list of different things that are off if you're too busy and not taking enough time to slow down once in a while. Exactly. And I recommend that to patients uh, in my clinical practice that have this chronic busyness. And I say, I want you to do nothing for an hour every day. And they're like, they actually can't even mm. imagine what nothing means. And so they say things like, well, can I can I go to the gym? <laughs> mm-hmm. No, no, no. You need to sit on a park bench and do mm-hmm. nothing. Can I take a bath? I mean, I have actually said, okay, take a bath. Okay, that may be nothing. But, um, but do you see women especially who have experienced a heart attack um, you know, have they had this chronic stress prior to, uh, do, does that event seem to occur in women's lives? Yeah, you can, you can really tell that, you know, some people have a hard time switching off or just, just turning off because they have mm-hmm. so much they're responsible for. And absolutely this happens in my practice. I've even had patients that thought they might be having a heart attack, but they had to go run an errand or go check on their mom. And so they right. ignored their symptoms for several hours. So absolutely. I mean, stress is a huge factor. And, you know, we, we know very clearly, uh, Maureen, that stress is a big risk factor for heart disease. We don't know the best way to deal with it, but I think until we have more data, I think anything that helps you with stress is good. Doing nothing, meditating, a bath, yoga, exercise within, you know, reason or something, all of those are good options. Anything that brings the stress level down so that you're more relaxed and able to focus and prioritize because it, it is so challenging. And you forgot one there, Dr. Uh, sex is absolutely number one. I didn't <laughs> have know sex. I, exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> you heard it here and have it a few times a week, you know, it's uh, it's good for you to experience orgasm as well as uh, the release of endorphins will help with pain, uh, will actually help you to sleep. It actually will help you to relax. I, I prescribe uh, a device called the Womanizer. You may have heard me talk about that before, but often in my clinical practice, because first of all, women are told that, you know, the, the journey is just as important as the destination, but I don't agree with that. Uh, I think it's important that women experience orgasm and, and I think it's important that women take time to themselves and you can use that with or without a partner Um, but I think it's important aspect of overall health sexual health is really important in terms of of your relationships and your health and how you're dealing with life I had one patient who said uh, she was a surgeon actually and she said she was getting really anxious just prior to going into surgery and so she was thinking of going on an antidepressant until I provided her with the womanizer. This is a true story. And she said, you know, she just, it would just help her to relax and help her to perform her, her, uh, sur- her surgeries with more confidence. And
and, and that's ultimately what it is about. It's that confidence. And then, you know, how can you get good at something if you don't practice at it? Anyway, Dr. Weisler, fantastic having you in the studio as always. Always you're, great to be here. Thank you're you. A good sport. And um, thanks so much. So, you know what? We're both, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll be doing when we leave. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> anyway, remember, it's sex is important. Absolutely. And as a heart doctor. And I think way better than, and no disrespect to psychiatrists, but it's a way better than an antidepressant as well. So I, I, I agree. Think, yeah, I agree. I Absolutely. Great. And, you know, and, and a lot of people are going on antidepressants. That's not to say, I mean, that, you know, a womanizer will cure your depression, but it actually might make you feel better. Or having sex might make you, make you calmer and feel better. And, um, but, I'm, but I'm glad to know I'm singing to the choir here. How can people get in touch with you? So uh, you can look uh, for me through my website at jvcardio.com. So the letter J, letter V, cardio.com. Or um, my office number is 604-980-1031. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure to have you on the program with your great information. I am Maureen McGrath. You are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. I'm Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Sometimes people think they can say whatever they want to me, and they do. Um, but some, but I can't repeat it on the air. But I will say this. Um, I will read part of this gentleman's <clears throat> uh, email. Married... 60 years old, no sex for the last 25 years. My wife won't let me have sex with her. She had a hysterectomy. How do I find a woman who likes it? Okay, you know, <laughs> after 25 years, he wants to find someone. Uh, here's the deal. I hear that a lot. People will say, my wife had a hysterectomy, so she can't have sex anymore. Or my wife had menopause, so she can't have sex anymore. And that's not true. That's not the issue. The issue is likely surgical menopause um, after a hysterectomy, which means that a woman may have uh, decreased estrogen receptors in the urogenital tract. And that, uh, simply put, is vaginal dryness that leads to painful sex. There are treatments for that. There are treatments such as personal moisturizers that are hormone-free. There's low-dose localized estrogen therapy. There is new novel laser therapy for that. Uh, so there are many treatments for that. And, uh, and it's a health issue as well because women who actually have... Um, uh, decreased estrogen receptors in the urogenital tract are at greater risk for urinary tract infections. And especially after the age of 65, they are more at risk for urosepsis and hospitalization and death. Okay. I'm telling you like it is. Um, but I want to get on to the vicious cycle of biking and sex with all of this Tour de France coverage that, uh, you're watching that, Andrew? It's fantastic. I am actually watching it. Like, not live, because it comes on in the dead of night. Exactly. Which, exactly. honestly, I am awake till the dead of night. Yeah. But there's other <laughs> things that I'm watching. Yes. But uh, I always do try to watch at least the, the highlights the next yes. day when they come on during yeah. prime time. And it's, it blows my mind, the endurance. The endurance is unbelievable. Like, I can and- barely cycle five kilometers without <laughs> wanting to just fall off and nurse myself with some poutine. Like... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, you know, I'm I'm looking at the scenery because I, I lived in France for a while. I lived in Toulouse and, and it's just bringing back so many memories. And also, um, but what I think of, and I hate this about me, I, you know, if I look at a man that has a large abdomen, I think low testosterone. When I look at a man uh, that is sitting on a, a bicycle on a skinny straddle, uh, <laughs> skinny saddle, straddling a sa- skinny saddle, yeah. I think, oh, erectile dysfunction, decrease 
increase blood flow. You know. <laughs> and I, I wish I didn't think like that because bicycling, bicycling is a fantastic way. And I, I'm a cyclist. It's a, a great bit. whole body workout. I can't really say I'm a cyclist, but I ride bike. I ride my bike a lot. Um, it's a great whole body workout. I, I love it. And it does get you from here to there. But when you sit on a chair, your weight is evenly distributed across both of your buttocks. And this takes pressure off your perineum, which is the region of your body that runs from the anus to the sex organs. And that is where the nerves and arteries that supply the penis in men and the clitoris and labia in women. So sitting on a bicycle seat puts pressure on the perineum and that compresses those crucial nerves and arteries. And this can lead to loss of sensation and erectile dysfunction. In fact, men are 1.7 times greater risk for erectile dysfunction. The cyclists, those who cycle, you know, I'm not talking about the guy who, you know, cycles down the street to, you know, whatever. I'm talking about these, these people that are on these hundred and hundred and, you know, 60 kilometers. I actually had a friend, <laughs> I, I, a friend of mine. He he called yesterday and, and he said, he, you know, we were all going to do something. And he said he was going to be in a bike race today, but he's decided that he didn't train enough for the 160 kilometers. And, and so he was going to stop by instead. So he came by in the morning and, and uh, so we had flan and I was <laughs> left over from last night. Oh, man. So I was saying, and so he said, oh, I'm feeling really guilty that I didn't do the, the bike race. And I'm like, don't. Let me tell you why. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was saying, and then I told him um, a, a few secrets. And I said, if you tell anybody, I'm going to tell people about the flan on the radio. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> so, I'm not giving his name away. Okay, okay. Um, and so I'm like, okay, so Brian, not his real name, uh, chose flan over a 160 kilometer bike ride. But, but I, of course, I told him about his risk of erectile dysfunction and decreased sexual sensation. And that will make, um, you know, sex less satisfying uh, for you. So nerve damage accounts for penile numbness that uh, some male bikers will experience as well. I've also seen patients who have had Peyronie's disease, which is a scar tissue and forms a bend in the penis. And that leads, that is a form of erectile dysfunction. And so what the research shows is that over the past 10 to 15 years, multiple studies have linked bicycle riding with sexual problems. And so here are a few of the examples. Norwegian researchers evaluated 160 men who filled in a questionnaire after they participated in a bike tour of 324 miles. One in five of the men had numbness of the penis, which lasted more than a week in some. 13%, 21 men, developed erectile dysfunction that generally lasted more than a week. And this can really hit at a man's uh, manhood. You know, um, erectile dysfunction. Many men are incredibly embarrassed about this medical condition. Researchers from the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health evaluated 17 members of a bicycling, bicycling police patrol unit in Cincinnati, Ohio. The men averaged nearly five and a half hours in the saddle every workday, almost Almost all of them experienced genital numbness from time to time. Those who rode the most were at the highest risk for erectile dysfunction, and the men who exerted the most pressure on their bike seats had the most problem. Your bike seat is critical. I have one of those gel bike seats <laughs> that, um, you know, because I really don't want to lose sensation, um, and nor do you. Um, so the, the no, no saddle, um, is, is one, one type of a bike seat that um, is associated with 
far less penile numbness. You really don't want to have penile numbness. So what do you do? Don't use a racing seat with the long, narrow nose. Use a wide seat. And I know a lot of guys don't like to do that. Don't tilt your seat upward and because that pressure, that position will increase pressure on your perineum. Be sure that your seat is at the correct height so that your legs aren't completely extended at the bottom of your pedal stroke. I have to admit to doing that. <laughs> I like that, uh, really stretching out those legs. Um, so I, I won't do that anymore. Uh, also consider the, of course, bad, uh, padded biking pants are always good. Raise your handlebars so you're sitting more upright and shift your position and take breaks during the long ride. So you see guys sitting up, you know, standing up on their bikes and, um, and doing that. Um, but the best advice is to make biking part of a balanced fitness program instead of relying on it exclusively. So alternate it with walking and jogging and swimming and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, anyway, that's what I see when I am looking at the Tour de France. <laughs> a lot of men with erectile dysfunction and high testosterone levels potentially because of all of their exercise that they're doing. They are skinny, those guys. I will say that. Um, also wanted just one last thing about menopause. We've talked about that a lot. A lot of women falsely believe that their sex life ends at menopause and, and a lot of men are falsely given that, given that false bill of goods that, that their sex lives end at menopause, but it doesn't. Um, but many women will experience a lot of symptoms like night sweats and um, irritability and overheating, um, sweating, flush skin. Uh, and, and this is because there is a huge shift uh, in the levels of estrogen and progesterone. But another um, symptom that a woman might be experiencing is uh, relates to the salivary gland. So women may get dry mouth. And, and you know what? Everything dries up because estrogen is the hormone regulator of the of every organ in your body, including the vagina and the mouth and the eyes. So you might get dry eyes. You might get bad breath as a result of it uh, because the mucous membranes dry out. And you might get dry nasal passages as well. So everything dries up. Um, so you want to moisturize. There's lots of eucalyptus uh, tabs you can use to moisturize. Um, there's uh, some solutions that, you know, hydrate because you don't want to continuously drink too much water um, because that can result in other problems for you with your sodium levels, for example. So sip water or sugarless drinks, avoid drinks with caffeine, chew sugarless gum or suck on sugarless hard candy to stimulate saliva flow. Um, you might want to, um, you know, pop a little eucalyptus tab in your mouth and you know what I mean, engage in something else that can actually get things tingling on the other side. If you know what I'm talking about, don't smoke or, or even drink alcohol, but uh, a lot of women need a glass or two of wine to relax. Uh, there is, however, a new medication in Canada coming out um, for low sexual desire in women. And also spicy and salty foods can also make dry mouth painful. So thanks so much for being here with me. Andrew, thank you so much for your fabulous technological production. All my guests tonight were fantastic. I really appreciate that. Keep the dial tuned exactly where it is because Drex is coming on next. <laughs> you just blew me a cast in the studio. And uh, remember, when you stumble on this gravel road of life, make it part of your dance. I cannot tell you how much I love this show. You know, I was at a party beforehand, but it was croquet. I'm happy to be here. So uh, until next week, remember, I'm Maureen McGrath, and this is the Sunday Night Health Show. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.